Chapter 7 The barley was now tall and wonderfully golden. The ears of grain were heavy and ready for harvesting. Gunhild awoke one morning to find her father outside sharpening the sickles with a whetstone. Are you ready to bring in the harvest, little cat? he asked. She blinked sleepily in the early light. Today? she asked. Soon, he said. I need some extra help with your mother and her condition. I know you'll help me, right? You're as tall as your mother now. Anyway, I was going to get some of Eric Mickelfoth's sons to help. Gunhild smiled, but didn't let on how much she liked the idea. Kettle and Inga left after the midday meal, riding their horses. Kettle still wasn't completely comfortable on a horse, but didn't like to admit it. They made it back by dinner, and announced that Osbjorn and his younger brothers, Thorbjorn and Eymunder, were coming in a few days' time. Even before they arrived, though, the family put in hours of work. Kettle and Inga both worked with a sickle to cut the stalks of barley. It was Rolf and Gunhild's job to take the big bundles, called sheaves, and tie them and set them upright so the heads of the barley stayed off the ground. They propped the sheaves against each other into a stook and then repeated the process again and again. It was backbreaking work. Rolf kept up gamely, though the sheaves were as big as he was. The harvest was so important to the farm and his family that he couldn't imagine being left out nor would his father have let him if he tried. After a day's work, Gunhild looked at the section of field they had managed to harvest, now bare and stubbly, punctuated by stooks. Cappy the black tomcat wove through the stubble, looking for mice. Nearby, acres of barley awaited harvesting. Gunhild tried not to think of how sore she would be in the morning. Osbjorn and his brothers arrived just after dawn the next day, and Osbjorn brought a sheep as a gift. It was a lovely fat sheep and would taste delicious, and really was too much of a gift, especially as Kettle was supposed to be paying them for their work. Gunhild was immediately suspicious that Osbjorn had something in mind, and apparently Kettle did too, for he received the sheep with some hesitation. With greetings out of the way, Kettle showed the boys what to do. They were familiar with how harvesting should work, but as their family were shepherds, they hadn't really tried using a sickle before. Thorbjorn was the same age as Gunhild and Eymunder was ten. Both worked hard and were able to give Rolf a rest later that day. Rolf went inside to lie down, thoroughly worn out, and Gunhild could hear Thorvi singing to him. She seemed to be in a much better mood recently. Maybe it was the harvest or the thought of the new baby. Maybe she had reached some peace about Yadith and her place in the family. Gunhild wasn't sure, but was glad that her family seemed happier than at any time since last spring. Osbjorn didn't get a chance to talk to her until that night. She was headed toward the latrine, and he was on his way back, which didn't make for the most romantic encounter, but as soon as he saw her alone, he ran over excitedly and took both her hands. "'I have to talk to you,' he whispered. "'I've talked to my father, and he said he would give me enough for a bride price. If I work hard over the winter, we could be married in the spring.' "'Married?' As much as she had enjoyed daydreaming about it, Hearing it said out loud made the idea seem suddenly too real. She knew that a groom paid a bride price, and a bride's father paid a dowry, but thinking about money brought her fantasy down to earth, to the complicated world of houses, farms, chores, and children. "'Don't you want to?' asked Osbjorn, nervous. "'What about your plan to go voyaging?' asked Gunhild. "'I'd rather have you. Father won't give me money for a ship.' Gunhild quickly tried to make sense of these statements. Osbjorn was professing his love. However, if his father wouldn't pay for a ship, but would pay her bride price, 
Did that mean she was a second choice? Osborne, still holding both her hands, was looking at her expectantly. A house and twenty sheep, said Osborne. With that, we can have a family. Say yes. Gunhild was about to ask more questions, then realized that she was ruining Osborne's proposal. So she said yes, and suddenly found Osborne kissing her, which she hadn't been ready for. Don't say anything, said Osborne. Not until my father can come back and talk to yours, okay? Okay, said Gunhild, slightly stunned. Osbjorn gave her hands a squeeze and then dashed back to the house while Gunhild continued to the latrine, processing what had just happened. The next day and the day after, Osbjorn kept grinning at her whenever she looked at him. While working in the fields, they were too busy to talk, and at dinner they had to pretend that nothing was going on, but they did manage to talk alone after dinner sometimes. Osbjorn talked about how he had asked for his father's support and what he had told his father about her beauty and her cleverness, which did allay some of her concerns but she never liked to be gone too long, and was worried that if she gave Osbjorn anything more than a quick kiss, someone would catch them, which would be a problem. She really shouldn't have agreed to a marriage without her family's permission, as people took a dim view of couples courting in secret. There were romantic songs about such things, of course, but at least half the time they ended in heartbreak or bloodshed. After days of hard work, the barley was cut and stood in stooks around the field. The barley would dry for a week before the family would separate the grain from the stalks and then beat the grain to break off the husks. Kettle paid Osbjorn and his brothers each a silver coin and sent them home. Osbjorn didn't get to say a proper goodbye to Gunhild, but turned and smiled at her one last time as he walked away. He had told her the night before that he would visit soon with his father. She wished she could talk to her mother about it and ask some of the questions she had been wondering, but she was worried that it might reflect badly on Osbjorn. She made herself wait until Osbjorn returned with Eric four days later, and when they did arrive, and after greetings went into the house to talk privately to Kettle, Gunhild found herself so nervous that she retreated to the grove of trees away from the farm so she could lie down and think. While she was there, Yadith found her. "'Are you not good?' asked Yadith with concern. Yadith pressed her hands to her stomach and to her head, miming illness. Sick? No, I'm not sick, said Gunhild. I'm excited and worried. Yadith didn't know those words, but sat down to listen. You know that Osbjorn and his father are at the house, asked Gunhild, making sure to use words familiar to Yadith. Osbjorn, yes, said Yadith. The one who you... Yadith, not knowing the word, mimed a kiss. You saw that? asked Gunhild, amazed. Yes, said Yadith simply. Well, Osbjorn is talking to my father, said Gunhild. Yadith's expression showed she suddenly understood. That is good, right? she said, smiling. Good for you. Yes, said Gunhild, more confident now than she had been. Yes, it is good. When they arrived back at the house, however, things were far from good. Osbjorn and Eric stood in the yard with Kettle and Inga. Eric was chatting with Inga, but Osbjorn stood off to the side, glowering. When Gunhild and Yadith approached, Eric smiled and greeted Gunhild and called Osbjorn over. "'So this is the girl,' said Eric. "'Kettle, your daughter is quite fetching. It's no wonder she caught my son's eye.' Eric turned back to Osbjorn. "'Don't worry, my boy. If it's meant to be, it will be.' Gunhild wasn't sure what that meant, but she knew that the conversation hadn't gone as planned. 
Looking at Osbjorn's sour expression, she felt tears well up and walked quickly away around the back of the house. Seeing nowhere else to go, she went into the barn and flopped down on a pile of hay, taking deep breaths to calm down. A few minutes later, she heard her mother and father come back into the house. They were on the other side of the wall, and she could hear their footsteps as they entered and sat down. It wasn't hard to hear their voices, and though she knew she shouldn't, she listened in. Besides, she thought, I deserve to know what's going on. So why did you refuse him? asked Thorvi. I said she was too young, said Kettle. She is only thirteen. I mean, that is a bit young. But not unheard of, said Thorvi. So what was your real reason? He offered a bride price of a house and twenty sheep. I can't come close to that. You mean we can't afford a dowry? Not one that won't shame us by comparison, said Kettle. And I know Eric's a good man. He's being generous, of course. But he thinks we're rich now. Word gets around, said Thorvi. I'm sure that when you and the rest of the Jarl's crew jumped off the boat in Ripa, you weren't shy about showing off your loot. I'll have more next year. I mean, I don't have anything against the match. Gunhild, listening from the barn, thought about what that meant. He would go raiding, sack another village, take more silver and slaves, and that would pay for her wedding. Or we could sell the girl, suggested Kettle. Better yet, give her as part of the dowry. Gunhild perked up at the idea. Yarath could come with her. They could stay together. The baby's due soon, said Thorvi. I'll need even more help then. You remember how much work Rolf was when he was born. I didn't sleep for days. So you want the girl around? At least until next year, said Thorvi. The conversation drifted to other matters, and Gunhild had to wait until they stood up and moved around so that she could sneak out of the barn without being heard. At least she knew that none of this was Osbjorn's fault, but she was furious at her father. It's just his pride, she thought. If he weren't so concerned about measuring up to another farmer, we could be married now. Nevertheless, at the same time, part of her didn't mind waiting a year, so long as Osbjorn didn't go anywhere. But who could guarantee that? By late November, the weather had gotten colder and wet. Kettle and Inga finished the barn, and the stubbled fields now sat dormant for the winter. There were still chores to do in the colder months. Yadith had to grind barley, shovel manure, and fork hay, no matter the weather, and sometimes she would come into the house soaked after her jobs. The other women wove, sewed, and spun. Inga was teaching Gunhild some complicated weaving techniques now that they had more time inside, and Thorvi was making baby blankets, baby clothes, and linen diapers. Rolf and Kettle amused themselves with stories and board games. Kettle taught Rolf some of his favorite poems, and they made some poems together, taking turns at the lines. Each line had a pattern that had to be followed, although there was some room for variation. Kettle would come up with something like, Hounds come coursing, crashing through meadows. And Rolf, thinking a moment, would add, they trailed a rabbit, tripping and turning. The family knew the birth would be soon and tried to focus on the excitement instead of the anxiety. Childbirth was a dangerous time, everyone knew, one of the most dangerous things a woman had to undergo. You've had three already, said Inga, reassuring Thorvi. The first is hardest, I'm told. This will be the easiest yet, I'm sure of it. Gunhild could remember Rolf's birth, as she had been six years old at the time. Still, she knew this birth would be different because she would understand more, and more would be expected of her. 
Then one night she awoke to sounds of movement about the house. A lantern was lit. Kettle was dressing, and Inga was sitting by Thorby's bedside. Gunhild came over to her and knelt. Is it time? she asked. Soon, said her mother. Probably still some hours yet. Your father is taking one of the horses to go bring Freudus. You could go back to sleep if you want. Gunhild tried, but couldn't, so she warmed milk for Inga and her mother, and waited up with them as the sun rose. Kettle and Freudus returned later, as Thorvi's contractions were coming closer together. Inga sat by her, holding her hand. Rolf and Yadith had been sent out, but Yadith had been instructed to stay within earshot. When Freudus arrived, she told Yadith to get some water warmed up. Gunhild realized that her father never actually came into the house. She wondered what he was doing to pass the time waiting. Freudus was asking some questions about the contractions and felt Thorvi's belly, and she and Inga, who between them had helped at many births, discussed this one and compared it to others. Freudus guided Gunhild's hand and showed her what to feel for and told her what to expect. Then she sent Gunhild to get a piece of charcoal, and she used it to write runes on Thorvi's belly and on the palms of her hands. She guessed by the contractions that there was still some time to wait, so she and Inga left Gunhild with her mother and they took some milk and some honey outside with them. Facing east, they sang a song to Freya and poured the milk and honey on the ground. Gunhild had heard the song before, but hearing it now, as she sat with her mother in labor, it seemed to fill the air with power and life. She could tell, as the voices of the two older women soared across the pastures, that there was true magic in it, and that Freya heard them. Not long after, a baby boy was born. Kettle and Rolf, who couldn't have been waiting too far away, came in. Thorvi smiled up at Kettle and held the baby wrapped in a blanket up to him. Brunyar, she said, after my grandfather. A good name, said Kettle. Your grandfather will be remembered through him and honored. Inga's prediction proved true, and Thorvi recovered quickly. Gunhild found herself now the official baby-holder, and spent much of her time rocking her new brother while Thorby slept for an hour or so, until Brunyar decided he was hungry again. They tried putting Brunyar in the soft, fur-lined cradle-box, but unlike Rolf, Brunyar seemed to sleep only when held. Thorby never asked Yadith to hold Brunyar, but that didn't mean Yadith had less to do, and she found that her cooking and washing duties had increased. Gunhild might once have wondered why Inga was content to sit and spin while Yadith struggled to take on the extra jobs, but she had realized long ago that to the rest of the family that was exactly what Yadith was there for, extra work. She wondered sometimes if somehow Yadith wasn't plotting revenge, if maybe like Vuland the smith in the ancient story she was waiting and biding her time, winning their trust until she could enact some horrible retribution, as when Vuland made a slave by King Nithuth presented the king with goblets made from the skulls of the king's own sons. Maybe that's why Thorvi never let Yadith hold Brunyar, thought Gunhild. Only once, as the rest of the house slept, and Gunhild held her sleeping brother, did Yadith come near to see him. She smiled at Gunhild, then approached and stroked the baby's cheek. Beautiful, she whispered, then returned to her spot in the corner. A few days before the winter solstice, Gunhild's father began packing for the trip to Ripa. He didn't talk much about the upcoming sacrifice, though Rolf questioned him about it. 
I haven't been to a block given by the Jarl before, said Kettle. Do you think they'll sacrifice a horse? asked Rolf. I assume so. What about a man? cried Rolf. Probably not, said Kettle simply. May I come? asked Rolf. Kettle considered this. You would have to stay with your uncle Ivar, he said. Not everyone gets to attend the Jarl's feast. What do you think, Thorvi? Take him, please, said Thorvi. We could do with some peace around the house. Rolf whooped and began to pack, too. He was finished within a few minutes, and was disappointed to find that they wouldn't leave until the next day. Father, may I come, too? said Gunhild, thinking of how much she would like to see Ivar and Vera again. Kettle shrugged. Can you manage? he asked his wife. Inga will keep things well in hand, Kettle, she said. Go enjoy yourselves. The next morning saw Kettle walking, leading Grara the Grey Mare, and Rolf and Gunhild riding double. They took a tent this time, because they still needed to stay overnight along the trail, and it was uncomfortably cold and wet. In fact, that night, squished up against her brother to keep from being pushed into the tent wall, Gunhild regretted coming along, but the next day when they arrived at Uncle Ivar's, she decided it was worth it. The family was happy to see Rolf and Gunhild again, and asked about their new brother and other news from the farm. Gunhild left out anything to do with Yadith or Osbjorn, which meant that she stuck to topics such as the harvest, and weaving, and cooking. She did, however, convince Ivar to take her out sailing one more time before the solstice, and she was happy to find that although her hands had gotten soft since she last sailed, she still had a feel for how to turn the sail and lean into the tiller. The next morning was the solstice. Gunhild found that people near the town were more observant of dates and rituals than she or her neighbors tended to be. On the farms, people asked for help from the gods when they needed it, when an animal was sick or the crops wouldn't grow. But those living in and near Ripa observed the solstices and the equinoxes regularly. That morning, Ivar took out the family statue of Thor, and the whole family sang over a bowl of mead and passed it around, each taking a drink. Ivar then dipped a whisk made of birch twigs into the bowl and flicked mead on the statue. After that, Kettle left his children and walked to Jarl Thorstein's hall, where the big celebration would take place. He told them about it later. Thorstein and his warriors, some other important local people, and one old woman who was a Seathkona, or seer, gathered in a large circle just before sunset. Ragnolf was there with Geralt, as were other men from the raiding party. Statues of Odin, Thor, and Froy, much bigger than the statue in Ivar's house, had been placed at the foot of an oak tree, and the participants gathered around. Two men led a jet-black stallion into the circle, and the Seathkona took a large knife and prayed over it in a low, repetitive chant, walking around the circle and letting the onlookers touch it. Then she handed it to Thorstein. Thorstein held the blade high and shouted, To Odin! and approached the skittish horse. It is no easy thing to kill a horse with a knife, and the stallion did not die easily. Even held by two men with ropes, the stallion kicked and reared, and afterward everyone said how brave and resolute the Jarl had been, not flinching or hesitating. The seer collected blood from the dead horse in a bowl and sang over it, and carried it as the Jarl moved from one participant to the next. Jarl Thorstein used a whisk made of twigs to flick each of his warriors and guests with blood from the bowl, then did the same to the three gods who sat before the great oak. After the sacrifice, the guests moved into the hall and began to drink, while the stallion was butchered and cooked. When the cooked meat was brought in and all had been served, the Jarl began with a toast to all the gods, and then to various ancestors by name. 
all guests drank for each of Thorstein's noble forefathers, and after that various guests rose and drank to their own ancestors. Soon no one was repeating the toasts, and it became a free-for-all of names and deeds, bellowed across the tables by men raising their mead cups high. The revelry lasted well into the night, and everyone ended up sleeping in the hall except for the Jarl, who eventually withdrew to his bed. Gunhild's evening was far different. As twilight fell, her aunt and uncle bundled up the children and lit candles to carry. The whole family walked not toward the town or the Jarl's hall, but to a small lake a few miles away. As they walked, they joined other families headed the same direction, carrying lanterns or torches. By the time they reached the lake, a crowd had assembled. A wooden scaffold had been set up, with the skull of a bull set at the top. Gunhild saw people walking up to the scaffold and touching it, and also walking to the lake and throwing things in. "'What do we do?' asked Gunhild. "'Touch the scaffold, child, and say the names of the gods,' said Bera. "'Then take this.' Bera took from her bag a handful of grain and put it in Gunhild's hand, then did the same for Rolf and all her own children. Go to the lake and throw it in as an offering. Do I make a wish? asked Gunhild. You can, said Bera, but if you do, do not wish for something selfish. This is not the time to wish for wealth or power. Wish for health and good crops and the safety of loved ones. Gunhild took the handful of grain and approached the wooden scaffold with the skull at the top. It was dark now, but there were other people crowding around, and some had candles or torches. She could see in the dim flicker of the flames that the wood had been carved with runes, but some of them she didn't recognize. She couldn't even read some of the words. She reached out for one of the poles in the scaffold and touched it, and knew just by touch that this was not new wood cut yesterday for this purpose. This wood was old and had been worn smooth by countless hands over countless years. She heard other people whisper as they touched the wood, so she did too. Thank you, Freya, she whispered. Thank you for my little brother, and for keeping my mother safe. She turned and followed the train of people walking to the lake. She saw in the flickering light one man kiss a knife and throw it in. Many other people threw handfuls of grain. She did the same, and paused for a moment to think to herself. Keep them all safe. Mother and father and Inga, Rolf and Grunjar, Ivar and Vera and my cousins, and Osbjorn, and Yareth. As she walked back with Ivar and the rest of the family, she began to think about the fact that she had just asked the gods to watch over Yareth. She knew that the English didn't worship the same gods as she did, though she wasn't sure which god or gods they did worship. Would the gods watch over someone who doesn't believe in them? she asked Ivar. Who doesn't believe in them? asked Ivar. Our slave, said Gunhild. I've heard it said that Thor protects the man who swings a sword, and Frey protects the man who swings a scythe. That's nothing to do with believing in them. But protecting slaves? He paused. I suppose the gods protect our sheep and cattle. Why not a slave too? Somewhat reassured, Gunhild returned to the house. That night she dreamt she was in the lake, underwater. But it wasn't scary. She didn't need to breathe. She wasn't cold. She was just floating in blue. She also felt she was loved by something. Something she couldn't see but felt all around her. Something big and wise and kind. Mm -hmm.